the Jewish views on life on campus, Hull University disaffiliates from the NUS, ramifications from the King's College fracart in Israel event, how are Jewish students coping? Britain's Got Talent, impersonator Darren Altman gives us an insight, and the Chelsea Flower Show, the former JFS pupil whose debut entry won a coveted gold. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. Three men who ran a Ponzi scheme for four years, which netted them £78 million, have been jailed. 46-year-old Spencer Steinberg, together with Michael Strubel, who's 54, and Yolande Saunders, who's 40, blew the money they stole from investors on Bentleys, Porsches and yachts. They'd claimed they'd won a contract to supply electrical goods to the Olympic Village in 2012, but their business was just a small electrical retailer in the East End. Saunders and Struble were jailed for seven years and Steinberg got six years. London's School of Oriental and African Studies has confirmed it's taken disciplinary action against a small number of students following rioting during an Israel Society event at King's College earlier this year. Police were called to the King's campus as around 20 anti-Israel protesters set off fire alarms and hurled chairs as former Shin Bet chief Ami Ayalon addressed the event. Hull University's Student Union has voted to disaffiliate from the National Union of Students just weeks after the organisation elected an anti-Zionist president, Malia Bouatia. Hull now joins Newcastle and Lincoln in choosing to sever links with the NUS, and several other student unions are planning a referendum to decide whether they too want to disaffiliate. Police are investigating after a man threatened families in Stamford Hill with anti-Semitic abuse. The neighbourhood watch group Shomrim claimed the man climbed into back gardens and shouted, Jews, move away, a bomb is coming. The suspect wasn't found. JFS has accepted the resignation of its head teacher, Jonathan Miller, who's been at the school for 30 years, eight of them as head. No reason has been given by JFS why he's left, though Mr Miller apparently told parents he wants to explore other opportunities. In 2014, Ofsted inspectors downgraded JFS from an outstanding school to one that requires improvement, a setback that Mr Miller called a blip in our proud history. And finally, Hollywood movie star Michael Douglas has said he was deeply touched when his son Dylan told him and his wife, the actress Catherine Zeta-Jones, that he wanted a bar mitzvah. He said the bar mitzvah helped him to re-engage with his own Jewish heritage. That's the news, now the sport with Andrew Sherwood. Thanks, Viv. On what is the penultimate weekend of the Jewish football season, FC Team B will be looking to seal runners-up spot in Division 1, though need to beat Redbridge B to achieve it. Redbridge go into the game having last week booked their place in the final of the MGBSFL Masters Invitational Cup, beating Scrabble Masters 5-2. They will meet North London Raiders Masters, who beat Speck in a penalty shootout. In Israel, Hapa El Sheva have been crowned Premier Division champions for the first time in 40 years. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu took to Twitter to congratulate them, before hosting them at a reception. And finally in tennis, Israel have one player left at this year's French Open, following another disappointing display at Roland Garros. Only two Israelis made it through to the main draws in Paris, with Dudi Seller suffering first-round exits in both the singles and doubles competitions. Jonathan Ehrlich, teaming up with Great Britain's Colin Fleming, is though through to the second round of the doubles. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at www.jewishnews.com.
jewishviewpoint.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this week's edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your edition of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me is Richard Ferrer, the editor of Jewish News and features editor Fran Wolfish. Welcome to you both. Rich, I know that we always start off with the front page, but you've got a very intriguing front page this week. Please do tell us what exactly the dark web is all about. Yeah, we've conducted a special investigation. It's something we've been working on for months and months now, and it's come to fruition this week on the front page. It's a horrifying exploration into the murky depths of extreme online anti-Semitism. We've had an undercover reporter who's been creating fake profiles in these uh, anti-Israel internet websites and all these secret groups that are full of propaganda and half-truths and transparent lies, reinforcing this worldview of of Israel being the centre of all evil and the cause of 9-11 and Zionism equals Nazism, etc. Just to get a sense of the mood and the poison that kind of manifests itself through these groups and these organisations. And it's a special report that looks into how these things are reinforced, how these individuals on these groups don't actually involve themselves in mainstream media. They only kind of tap into media that actually backs up their own position. And they end up in this kind of twilight zone, this kind of cyber zone of of, of hatred and bile that only ever repeats their own prejudices and never actually is confronting anyone with the truth. So this person has developed this, this new identity and he's hopefully going to be reporting on and on for the weeks to come. Hopefully he hasn't been spotted and and this uh, report won't reveal anything too much to anybody or raise anyone's suspicions and we can get more from him in the future. And is there any plan to use this to, say, expose some of these websites that spout such rhetoric or, or is it more that it's just for our benefit that we now know as a community what we're up against? Yeah, I think it's more an awareness thing. I, uh, these things uh, open up and, and shut down all the time. Some of them are so preposterous, it is ridiculous. The, the, the details about you know comparing Netanyahu to, to Adolf Hitler and, you know, as I said, convincing that everyone that, that the Jews are the centre of ethnic cleansing in the Middle East it is but it's preposterous, nonsensical stuff. I don't think that the police are going to be that interested in in closing a lot of these down because a lot of them aren't terribly uh, well run and well respected and and they're not great influencers I don't think in in world politics but we were more interested in the sort of individuals that inhabit these spaces what brings them to it what motivates them to take part in these societies and how it affects their worldview and the danger that it might pose so it's an interesting investigation it's real kind of through the looking glass and it's an opportunity for people perhaps to get a, a side of the web that you don't see from mainstream media doesn't feel like a massive shock though does it Fran it's as if we sort of knew this was happening but maybe we didn't know to what degree it was happening well I think I can safely say for the majority of us and our listeners um, most people don't go onto these websites and they don't join up and spout all this kind of you know rhetoric that's very disagreeable but I think what it does highlight is the fact that there is this underbelly in the internet and social media, the clue is in the name. It's supposed to be social, it's supposed to bring people together. What on earth are these groups doing bringing this lot of people together? Are we, you know, we have these cauldrons bubbling away and some of them are right here in the UK and they're breeding grounds for extremism. And so, you know, it's a very good thing to be investigating them and finding out who is behind them, who is taking part. And, you know, have they been responsible, perhaps, for leading people on to further, more dreadful things? 
quite. Goodness. Well, OK, absolutely. Let's see how that unfolds. Well, on to a slightly lighter note, thankfully. Chelsea Flower Show obviously took place over the past week. One of the award-winning designs, which has been, it feels as if it's been all over the front pages of some of the national press and also some of the mainstream news as well, is by a former JFS pupil, Gabby Lebetkin, and her depiction of Her Majesty the Queen, done in a sort of rather fancy decoupage effect with flowers bordering it. It's very, very nice, isn't it? Did you just say decoupage? Decoupage. What does that mean? You don't know what decoupage oh, is? Richard, for goodness Richard sake. Richard Ferrer, really? Okay. We don't know what decoupage is. Oh, thesaurus, that one. Okay, well, do you know what? Show. I think we should, maybe we should explain this then for listeners who maybe are thinking exactly the same. What on earth is he talking about? Decoupage is the effect of using paper to build up layers. Okay. Okay. Well, that's certainly what Gabby Lebetkin's done in this picture. It's one of the most colourful and eye-catching images we've had in the paper in a while. You know, I've just sort of started to appreciate myself, my own green fingers. I'm starting to get a bit more engaged in gardening. My wife is actually going to the Chelsea Flower Show. We've actually started to put in different plants. And summer is an amazingly exciting time when you have a garden. I grew up with a garden and for 20 years I didn't have one. And we've just got some Dixonian Antarcticas in the garden. Isn't that impressive? I don't know my chrysanthemum. And he doesn't know what decoupage is. No, I didn't. <laughs> I'm starting to, you know, I'm, you, you'll find me at home base on an idle Sunday. Just... Uh, gathering my thoughts um, I still don't know my chrysanthemums for my elbow but I am starting to learn I am starting to appreciate gardening more and Gabby Lebetkin yeah she's a former JFS pupil 23 and she's won the uh, iconic Queen's Head category and I presume every year the best depiction of the Queen's Head wins this wonderful prize and she looks very proud standing on the top of a nice big yellow stepladder uh, putting the last flower in her decoration so yeah beautiful it's exactly what picture captions are made for this, this gorgeous image and what a wonderful tribute as well to the Queen in her 90th year. It's very special for Gabby to be winning it this year. It certainly is. Well, we'll hear from Gabby herself later on in this very programme. Benuri Art Gallery, on from one art form to another. Fran, what is this about? This is one of your features this week. Yes, I went to a stunning exhibition, actually, at Christie's South Kensington, where there are three rooms literally filled with 100 artworks from the Ben Uri collection and it's called 100 for 100 because this year is their centenary year. They started off actually as a very sort of small society inside Gradle's restaurant in Whitechapel. You can imagine all these artists talking about their art over salt beef and pickles and here they are 100 years later. We've just got this fantastic collection. Some of the artists are very well known, some of the artists not so well known but it is an amazing exhibition to look around and you get a real sort of chronological feel of how art by Jewish artists has progressed and developed. Some with Jewish themes, some not with Jewish themes. Some of it does tell you the Jewish story behind artists who've lived in this country. There's lots of depictions of migration, you know, life in the shtetls, how that's disappeared, how people came over as refugees, and the kind of themes that really resonate with today, actually. Well, I worry that I might be just as uncultured as Richard is if he doesn't know what decoupage is, because is there any particular... I'm not familiar with the Benary Gallery. Does it focus on any one particular style of art, or is it many different as long as they are potentially Jewish artists or Jewish depictions? Well, it's an interesting question. Starting off, it was actually a society for Jewish artists because they were more or less 
barred from getting into the Royal Academy. There wasn't a law on that. No one really said that, but that seemed to be the impression. So they needed their own society to really represent them. And as the years have gone on, the collection has grown and they now accept artwork from artists all over the world, some Jewish, some not Jewish, but which resonate with the themes that have been shown throughout, such as identity and migration. One of my, well, one of the most graphic pieces, there is a bit of Holocaust art there, but very sort of thought-provoking is Interrogation by George Grotch. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It just shows the sort of torturous killing by Nazis of this Jewish anarchist. But then there are equally, you know, some beautiful depictions of sort of the old traditional shtetl life that we've more or less lost now. Alfred Woolmark's The Last Days of Rabbi Ben Ezra is an incredible masterpiece. It's worth going to see that alone. It sort of takes up a whole a whole wall. It's six foot by six foot. It's massive. And uh, Rabbi and Rabbitson's by Mark Gertler, which was done in 1914, also shows kind of the traditional Orthodox Jews who came over, but again, a disappearing life. So, you know, the community was changing. So it, it is a, the stories behind the pictures, I would say, are probably even more sort of fascinating and add to the collection. Goodness, it certainly does sound intriguing and I think it's well worth a visit by the sound of it. Time is against us, so let's talk last but by no means least about Paul Simon. Believe that he's also in the paper this week. Yeah, I'm feeling a bit spoilt as a music fan. Radiohead's exquisite album came out only a couple of weeks ago and now one of my other big favourites, Paul Simon, is really back in form. We have got an interview with him. It's a very open and honest interview about his past successes and past failures. I mean, let's face it, he's had a couple of howlers recently. His surprise album a few a few years ago really was a bit of a turkey and he had a, uh, a soundtrack, I think it was called the Songs from the Cape Man, which also wasn't terribly good. But generally speaking, this man's back catalogue is absolutely superb and untouchable and by all accounts stranger to stranger which is his new album is absolutely sublime so uh, looking forward to hearing it and we've got a very open and honest uh, account of his career to date and how difficult it is to live up to uh, the high water mark of bridge over troubled water which is something i don't think anyone is going to be able to do but when you look at his subsequent stuff graceland rhythm of the saints hearts and bones etc he's certainly given it a good crack and i think it's fair to say along with billy joel the greatest ever contemporary jewish pop musician i think I'm pretty down to earth as well. I mean, yeah. he says he never knew any of his songs would be hits. I mean, look at him now, you know, it's hit after hit after hit. People just know Paul Simon, don't they? So quite, he comes across as quite a modest man as well, which is nice and humbling. In an industry that is absolutely littered with egos, it is very humbling to stumble across someone who is down to earth despite success. Thank you both very much indeed. That's all we've got time for for the pay-per-view for this week. Don't forget you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday right across London or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. As you've heard already in this programme, university doesn't appear to be the easiest of places for Jewish students following the recent election of an NUS president whose past comments would imply that she doesn't necessarily favour Israel. And this week we learnt of the disciplinary action against those behind King's College London's Israel event fracas that took place back in January. It would certainly appear as though Jewish students are more than distracted with what should be a crucial part in their educational life. I've been speaking to Russell Lenger, the campaign's director for the Union of Jewish Students, to find out exactly what the mood amongst the Jewish university community is like. He started by telling me exactly how Jewish students are made to feel. 
So I think the first point to make is that there is a vibrant Jewish life on campus. There's 8,500 Jewish students in the UK. And for the most part, they live positive, like they, they live the normal student life on campus. They have their main concerns have probably come down to the same concerns that most students have, such as where they're going out this weekend and how they're going to balance that with their exams. But that said, I wouldn't be lying if I said that there wasn't concern over the rise in anti-Semitism on campus. But I think that rise in anti-Semitism on campus has come from a has come from the politics on campus. It's not got to a point where I think Jewish students are any more at physical threat than they would be walking down the street anywhere else in the UK. But campus is a particularly political place. And unfortunately, within the, the political conversation that's happening on campus, there has been an increase in anti-Semitic rhetoric. And one would assume those political conversations you mean talking about Israel and the Middle East? Not just Israel, but yes, Israel is a big point of it. But it it moves on to the way that Zionism is used and it crosses over. It's not just it's not an issue that Israel is a discussion on campus. It's perfectly acceptable that debate happens around Israel on campus, as debate happens on lots of topics on campus, and no one should be wanting to shut down that debate. But the language used when having that debate is always important and when people are using the word Zionist interchangeably with Jews and conspiracy theories, then that, that crosses that line. So the problem is that the only things that seem to make the headlines are always these stories of either universities disaffiliating themselves from the NUS now since the election of uh, the president there, whose past comments would imply that perhaps she's not as in favour of Israel as maybe some others have been. And also we hear about various anti-Semitic incidents based on perhaps Israel debates. Is that what it is like? Is it as black and white as that? Or is this just because these are sensational headlines that make the news and actually... Jewish students, by and large, can just carry on pretty much normal day to day. Well, that's the thing. As you, like the the two things you pointed out are very much like in the politics of it, and you see that much more when you're involved in in the politics. Only a handful of universities are currently having disaffiliations at any one point in time. So, if you're not on those campuses, then it's not a big topic on that campus. And the the comments of NUS is a thing, but like that's people reading it in the papers, reading it online about it. That's not them experiencing it day to day. So I don't think that's the day-to-day experience of most Jewish students. It's happening, and it is a concern, and the comments by the president-elect are a concern. But it's not the only experience. There's also many good student union officers out there who have a really good relationship with the Jewish community, Jewish students, including within NUS. But those aren't the people that make the headlines. So one could argue it's probably more university-dependent. No two campuses are the same, but students, yeah, your experience will differ depending on which campus you go. But even within the same university, it all comes down to individuals. And even within one student's union, you can get a student union officer who has said problematic things, but you could have that student union officer running an election against someone else who agrees with, who isn't Jewish, but also like stands with the Jewish community on that campus and says those things aren't acceptable. So tell us how the UJS officers scattered around across the country work with the various universities to try and help life on campus for Jewish students. What is it that they do in their day-to-day tasks and what are their jobs to try and help the experience of Jewish students? So I think the first thing to say is, as as a representative organisation, we're also proud of the fact we're peer-led. And a big part of that is the fact that we can't all be run out of out of a office and it's not all done by our paid staff. A big part of my job is simply training activists on campus so, to empower them to do these things themselves. And a big part of that is... UGS is a national organisation, and big part, and though we work locally and have those relationships locally as well, a big part of our jobs working on a national level and building those relationships on a national level. 
a big part of my big push has been to get more students from their local JSOCs, more JSOC presidents and campaigns officers, building those relationships with their student union officers. When their student union officers first start off at the beginning of the year, going for coffee with them, getting to know them. Because at the end of the day, if you don't come from North London, if you don't come from a few cities around the country, the odds are you might not have even met a Jewish person before in your life. And university might be the first chance you actually get to do that. And therefore, I think it's really important that they get to know the Jewish community on their campus and get to understand the concerns of Jewish students so that Jewish students do have um, people that they know and trust in their student unions. See, it's surface value to a lot of those who are not students, and there is quite an overwhelming number of us out there, who read what we see in the news. We, we hear all of this horrible nonsense that's going on and how many students appear to be quite anti-Israel, anti-Middle East situation that's going on there at the moment. How key is it for Jewish students to take part in trying to combat that? Does this mean that we've got to really live in fear almost of what the next generation of potential leaders of this country could be like towards Israel and the future of it? So as I before, I don't think it's all students are hostile to Israel. I think uh, it's a very vocal minority uh, who are and I think that's something that when during Israeli apartheid week when a lot of Jewish students take to campus and do pro-Israel campaigns to balance the debate what you do notice is the vast majority of people you speak to don't know that much on the subject don't have particularly aren't particularly passionate on it and that the vast majority just are interested to learn more and to do what university students should do hear two sides of a debate and make up their own minds and based on the information they have in front, as well as doing their own research. And that's what most, and that's what university should be about. It should be about taking the information and being able to make a decision yourself. In terms of the next generation, if you look through the history of student politics, student politics has always been radical. It, it always has been, and I think it always will continue to be. That's part of being a student. That's part of, that's just always been part of campus life. I think that's why it's always important that we do build those those relationships with student leaders because, as you said, student leaders will go on to be the leaders of the future and therefore it's important that we do build those relationships with them. If someone listening now is maybe a Jewish student just starting off in university life, maybe doesn't appreciate some of the help and the support that UJS offers, can you just tell them where they get more information, how they go about getting in contact with UJS and, and really what you guys would do for them or could do for them? Sure. So I think the first stage to getting involved in any Jewish life on campus is to get in touch with your local Jewish society who will know their campus best. And so I think the very first thing you should do on the very first week would be go to your Freshers' Fair, sign up for JSOC and make sure that you're... And, and from there you'll be on UJS's emailing list and you'll be in touch and you'll be able to get information about our events there. In terms of someone that's already on campus and might not know how to get in touch with us, go onto our website, ugs.org.uk. We'll have all the contact details. If you ever have an issue on your campus that requires help, then you can pick up the phone. There's always someone here to answer. Well, not 24 hours a day, but during office hours, there'll always be somebody here to answer and we can make sure that you get the assistance you need. Russell Lenger, the campaign's director for the Union of Jewish Students, talking to me there about what life for Jewish students is really like at the moment. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberitz, and children's author, Joe Craig. They'll be discussing Jewish identity. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to a rather impressive bar mitzvah boy who's used his coming of age to help those less fortunate than himself. 
Also, if that's not enough, we're also going to hear what happened when I spoke to Gabby Lebetkin, the former JFS pupil whose debut Chelsea Flower Show entry this year won her a gold. So lots still to come. But first... The latest series of Britain's Got Talent has showcased some of the finest that the world has to offer, but one man in particular made a real impression on us. See what we did there? Impersonator Darren Altman was unfortunately eliminated on the first semi-finals night, but Kate Fulton has been speaking to him all the same to hear about his time on BGT. She started by asking him how he felt going in for one of the most watched TV shows on British telly. Nervous, in a word... (laughs) Incredibly nervous. It's not something I do as, as you know, I'm a voiceover artist. So there's a world of difference between, you know, what I do in the booth on a day to day basis and then going out in front of 3000 people at the Dominion Theatre and or even, you know, 10 million people as in the semifinals. So, yeah, I don't have any sort of training, really. I'm not like one of these people you see on there that's been gigging for years up and down and all around. So it was, uh, yeah, it was incredibly nerve wracking because the stage is huge and the place is huge and you've just got your voice to to take you through did you have any any training for the sort of stage presence not really well no no training I mean obviously work hard on all my impressions and the voices and you know drilling down into the intricacies and and the details of, of all the people I'm I'm impersonating but in terms of stage presence no you just as you do one voice and move on to the next, you know, you just try and become the person, you know, because you've seen enough YouTube and, and, and TV footage of them. So you just try and become them and get into the character. And I suppose that's where the stage presence is, really. Obviously, you must have been a bit disappointed at the at the outcome. You did amazingly. And you must be very pleased with how, how it went up to then. I am pleased. I mean, I, I won't lie. I'm sort of kicking myself now a bit just because what I wanted out of that semi-final didn't I didn't sort of attain what I aspired to get which was a place in the final you know I never thought I'd, I'd, I'd win the thing for for a moment but I just you know I just wanted to, to get into that final and I, I'm you know sadly I didn't get that and, and the comments regarding the semi-final act and the staging were not what I thought they would be I thought that they would love the fact that I, I, I dared to try something different, you know, than, than any other impressionist has, has done before on that show. But you're a household uh, name now. I mean, you must, you must be pleased. Well, not really. Work. I mean, come on, you know. It's, you it's, are. We're very proud of you. Well, thank you're you. You're one of no, ours. I mean, the thing is, I'm, I'm a realist. You know, it's, it's, it's 15 minutes of fame, isn't it? If you do, unless, unless you sort of do really, really well, and don't get me wrong, I've got every intention of trying to leverage this and, you know, maximise you know, what I, what I can get and, and, and do the best I can out of it. But, you know, it's a, it's a competition at the end of the day. I mean, How it's, did it's, you it's, get into impressions in the first place, impersonations? Well, it's that thing, you know, when I was a young boy, I mean, I'm showing my age now, but, you know, I used to do, you know, Frank Spencer and Tommy Cooper and John Wayne. And, and I've always, you know, impersonated friends and teachers and, um, I'm a musician, actually. I studied music, uh, drums and uh, jazz drums in music colleges all over the place, Leeds, the Guildhall and Trinity College of Music, and later became a voiceover artist. But I've always had a really good ear. I've just had a knack. And... Which is your favourite one to when we say, go on, give us one. Let's see um, if we can guess. Uh, who can I do? When you do this guy, you have to talk about things like earned horsepower. Excellent. Even I got that one, and I didn't even particularly watch the program. <laughs> <laughs> so he, I get asked to do him a lot, and, and here we can see the barn owl swooping majestically towards its prey silently. I never thought I'd be interviewing Attenborough. That's great. You know, I get three for the price of one here. There you go. When you you were saying you were doing um, 
you were doing stories or you were, you were throwing yourself into all the different parts. What was that yes. all about? Tell me about the, about the stories. I love stories and reading. What, you mean uh, on Allowed. the VT? Yeah. Oh, I think that, yeah, that was just about uh, reading my daughter bedtime stories and doing all the, vo- you know, she says, Daddy, do all the voices, do the voices. So um, I think that was what they were alluding to. But in terms of the impressions, you know, just really trying to get get dig deep into all the characters and the voices and trying to get as close and as real as, as, as possible as I could get. Did you ever do radio? I'm mean, in fact a radio play. It could be all the parts because nobody would ever know. Well, sometimes I get asked to do adverts or, or web videos and stuff and get to, you know, they say, can you do all three or all four characters? And I say, well, yeah. So, you know, I got something today and they want me to demo three characters for one video. And it's, you know, as long as you send, they send me the brief and, and what they want, then, yeah, I'm happy to always. Excellent. And where's your future going to take you? What's next? Well, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm doing well on my voiceover career. I'm making lots of radio ads and TV and web videos and radio imaging and, and documentaries. I do I do lots of different stuff. But, you know, like we were talking about, I think that off the back of this, I, I, I presented something for the National Lottery, which was great. It was a proper two-camera shoot and a crew there. That went down really well. Apparently, it's got well over a million views. I got to voice with the original Zippy and George puppets uh-huh. from Temps. They brought that in for me to do uh, something for the National Lottery, which was amazing. You've got to so- say goodbye to me from Z- in Zippy. Would you mind? <laughs> I loved him. Well, it was lovely talking to you. Yes, it was lovely talking to you. Yes, and I hope to see you soon. Yes, bye-bye. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, Dan. Impersonator Darren Altman talking to Kate Fulton there about his recent time on Britain's Got Talent. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. Now bar or bat mitzvahs are supposed to be one of those rare occasions where it's all about us, right? Well, Joshka Gunnison took inspiration from his bar mitzvah to help those less fortunate than him celebrate theirs. To find out more, community reporter Diana Toman has been speaking to Joshku and his mother, Alison, and she started by asking Joshku to tell us exactly what it was he did to raise the money. What I did is I cycled to the near canal and one day I cycled 25 miles down the canal and the next day I cycled 25 miles the other way on the, along the canal. And were you sponsored per mile by people or how did you raise the money? I sent out a sponsorship to ev- all of what, everyone I know, friends and family and um, I had this website that Chabed put up for me which my grandpa is a member of the committee there. How much did you raise altogether? £2,500. That's an amazing amount of money. Tell me where it went. Do you know where it went? Me and my mum bought cross pens for all the boys and girls with their names engraved in it and also some notepads with their names in, which we gave to them when we got there. And also what they wore on the day the mitzvah outfit and also the party outfit we paid for. Tell me who they are. The mitzvah children in Carmiel. Um, there's uh, seven girls and 15 boys. Who were going to have their bar and bat mitzvahs? Yes. In Israel? Yes. Right, and tell me a little bit about Carmiel. 
Carmiel is a children's home or village um, with lots of different homes that lots and lots of children from broken homes, be it drugs or abuse, they go there and they know what they experience what it's like to be in a family environment with them. Like they have like sort of foster parents that live in the village and they take several children and they ha- they raise them like a family. And they also get psychiatric help. And I gather you've had an award of some sort? Yeah, I got a certificate from Carmiel and I have received the Jack Petchy Award that my synagogue put me up for. Who's your synagogue? Um, EDRS. Which Edgeware is? District Reform Synagogue. Edgeware District Reform Synagogue. Fine. Alison is, is, is Joshka's mother and she's smiling at me at the moment. I imagine you must be very proud of him. I am very proud of him, yeah. What does this mean to you, Alison? I think what's important for me is how he realised how lucky he is to have all the things that he had and have a lovely bar mitzvah party and to realise not everyone's quite so lucky in the world and, and to increase his awareness of children in other circumstances that are less fortunate than him and to want to do something to help them, to give something back. And, you know, the whole thing about having a bar mitzvah and becoming a man and learning you know what that means in terms of being responsible I think that it deepened his whole journey and understanding of of becoming a man being responsible and doing something you know for others I I think that was a really you know really important part of that rite of passage did you feel that even more once you got to Israel yeah I did it was amazing being in the village during their bar mitzvah and I felt like really proud of myself for like make to make their day so much more special. Did they have their bar and bat mitzvahs all on the same day or were you covering them all as it were? They all had a joint bar and bat mitzvah on the same day. Oh did they? Right. Yes and I me and my mum had planned to go to Israel on that day anyway and when we asked when the bar mitzvah was it just so happened that it was on the same day or same it was whilst we were out there. And did it coincide with your bar mitzvah? I mean, was it before or after yours? It was after mine. It was after yours. My bar mitzvah was in February and theirs was in April. I see. So it was like two months after mine. But it was pretty, it was amazing. How would you like to see this going forward? What would you like, what, what do you think, Alison, about how you could influence people to do the same thing all over again for their bar mitzvahs or bat mitzvahs indeed? I think we we both, Joshua and I, got so much out of it that I would love other parents and other Bermitsa children to experience what we experienced. And I'd also love to see, particularly Carmiel, have support ongoingly. They're going to have this every year. They're going to have a group of children becoming Bermitsa. And I would love for them to have the kind of support and help to make you know future years as special as the one that we were able to contribute to. So, I, you know, I think it's a win-win. Joshku Gunnison and his mother, Alison, talking to Diana Toman there about his recent fundraising efforts to help a group of children in Israel celebrate their bar and bat mitzvahs. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come will be our rabbinic thought for the week from Rabbi Andrew Shaw of Mizrahi, UK. 
Now, the Chelsea Flower Show is always guaranteed to be a horticulturalist's dream. But did you know that one of the most eye-catching displays to come out of this year's event was designed by a former JFS pupil? Gabby Lebetkin's debut entry won her a coveted gold prize. I've been speaking to Gabby to find out how she's felt following on from her success at gardening's most sought-after event. I started by asking her to tell us how one goes about designing an award-winning display for Chelsea. It took quite a few months in planning and quite a few ideas, but when you kind of refine something so much, I think that's when it happens. And tell us about the process, because I'm guessing that it wasn't, although this was your design, I believe, it wasn't just you, was it? No, it was, it was a group of three of us along with Ming, who owns Viva's Carter, the company. And then the two other girls, they were part of Event Concept, which is our sister company. And we kind of got together and embarked on this amazing journey until now. And the brief was behind every great florist is the new Covent Garden flower market. And that's how we kind of got this relationship between two sides. And that's where we got the design from. And I think anyone who hasn't seen your award-winning design frankly has been living on another planet (laughs) because it has been absolutely all over the place television news have picked up on it newspapers have been running with it like if you'll forgive the pun like wildflowers (laughs) and it's amazing did you ever think in your wildest dreams when you came up with it that it would have this reaction we hope so i think that that was the biggest thing for us is that we We believed that it would, but we didn't know it was going to happen. And I think one of the main kind of objectives for us was to create something that it was impactful on when people saw it and also photograph, like, so you could photograph it. And that was, for us, the main kind of priority for PR. Because it's quite different to anything seen before at Chelsea, really, isn't it? Chelsea is obviously, typically speaking, either one of two things. You either have traditional garden design or you have stands showcasing different floral arrangements. Now, although yours is part floral arrangements, it's certainly not by any stretch of the imagination a traditional stand. For those who don't know what I'm talking about, it obviously depicts Her Majesty the Queen's head and it's done in several almost decoupage layers with the head getting ever (laughs) smaller but bordered around that and very bright, garish and sensational looking flowers. How did you even think of the idea, I guess? Because it's just so different. And and were you worried about entering it into Chelsea, considering how different it was? 100%, 100%. Because when we... So our client is a new Covent Garden market. We're working together on this. So we had to brief them on three different ideas. And that was our wild card for them. And we never thought they would go for that. We always thought that they were going to go for the traditional centred into the middle, quite big, quite classic, but they went for it. Tell us about judging morning, because that's always oh, the nerve-wracking yeah, moment at Chelsea. Every exhibitor always says it. They say <laughs> how terrifying it is to have the judges come round and slowly but surely just glance over, giving nothing away, glancing over yeah. the stand because, or garden before them. Yeah, because you, you can see them and you can see them raise their hand. And you can see them moving their mouths, but you can't. You don't know what they're saying. So they could say, where's oh, so your you're hand? you're not by the stand when they're doing this? You're not really allowed to be too close to them because obviously if you hear anything, then you know what's happening. But people, try, people always say, try and read their mouths 
kind of lip read and what they're saying because you just I don't know you just never know what they're what they're saying describe the moment when you got the gold oh I just cried <laughs> it wasn't that bad I hope <laughs> it was just everything it's been it's been quite an emotional journey for for us because the design team were quite young and it's just incredible that our bosses have given us this opportunity they've trusted three young girls in their 20s with x amount of money and a design that you know are you allowed to say how much money i'm i can't i can't tell you it was worth a try (laughs) (laughs) are you one of the youngest winners of gold at chelsea do you know or you don't know that i i haven't looked into it but i wouldn't be surprised which is an amazing achievement yeah incredible I just can't believe this is all happening. It's completely... Well, where do you hope this is going to springboard you to? I don't even know. Anywhere. Everywhere. (laughs) You must have, I suppose you must have an idea of career in mind. Obviously, this is what you do. At the moment, I'm I'm styling and floral designer at Vivas Carter, but I also have a background in landscape architecture, which I now just feeling so inspired by where I've been. I just feel like maybe that's a path that I could go down. But I, I'm really enjoying my career at the moment. So it's definitely where I'm kind of sticking for the moment. Just finally, yeah. does Chelsea have to look out for next year? Are you planning to make a comeback again? Yes, 100%. I keep on telling Ming, my boss as well, she doesn't want to do it, but I'm going to push her. We need to do it. Gold award winning Gabby Lebetkin talking to me there about her amazing display at this year's Chelsea Flower Show. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Rosslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today is founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberts, and children's author, Joe Craig. And the subject today is based on an item we heard in the news with Viv a little earlier on. Actor Michael Douglas is said to be deeply touched by his son Dylan Douglas' engagement with his Judaism. Now, keeping in mind that his mother, Catherine Zeta-Jones, isn't Jewish, that would mean that, halakhically, Dylan is neither. It goes to show that Judaism can be interpreted in many different ways, and so we thought we'd ask what makes a Jewish identity. Joe, shall we start with you? You've always told us you're culturally Jewish, but how does that identify you as a Jew? For me, it's about much more than the halakhic rules about whether you are technically Jewish in the eyes of the, the most observant or conservative rabbis. For me, it's about self-defining as Jewish, embracing Jewish culture, Jewish food, wanting to be Jewish, being proud of being Jewish. And that begins more and more to have a distance between that and your actual blood and whether it matters whether your mother was was Jewish and her mother was Jewish. I know that connection to the past and lineage and those traditions are important, but that's a separate thing, I think, to defining yourself as Jewish. Actually, you had a good point there, because you know the reason why it goes through the mother and not through the father is not mm-hmm. particularly religious. It goes only back to, I think, the Middle Ages, when there was the squire, the lord of the manor, who wanted any woman and could have her. And so if he took a Jewish woman and made her pregnant, they knew that his child, that that child would be Jewish. Therefore, he wasn't. 
And that's where it all comes from. Yeah, it springs a, from a that. A woman yeah. always knows yeah. the baby's hers for obvious that's reasons. It. You know but the in fact, Moses and all the others, Isaac and Jacob and all of them, most of them married non-Jewish women. In those days, it was perfectly all right to marry a non-Jewish woman and have Jewish children. And, and although I belong to an orthodox synagogue, I certainly think there's a lot of in what the liberals and the reforms say about it. Mm. Well, I was having this very same conversation last night with some friends, and we were saying that to us, we're Jewish, we're all reform, and we've both got friends who are liberal, and to a Haredi, that almost isn't Jewish in, in some ways. And I know personally, I'm very Jewish in most of the things I do, the Jewish Poetry Society, running workshops for Jamie, doing so many Jewish things, but I'm not religious, I'm not orthodox, and it doesn't matter, it doesn't change who I am. But what, what makes you Jewish? My interest, I suppose, because I lead a Jewish life, I've got friends, all my friends are Jewish, and it's more the culture than the religion. What I find very interesting about defining us as Jews is that we seem to be defined better from without rather than within the religion. We find that when, whenever we, we try and define ourselves as Jews, we start coming across real problems and issues. It gets very messy. And a certain sect of Judaism will say, we have to do this. And the Haredim will say, well, being born with a Jewish mother isn't enough. You have to you know, be a part of the certain standards that we uphold. Whereas from without... You look at our history. How did Hitler define a Jew? Very broadly. Very, very broadly. How did Pharaoh define the Jews in Egypt? Same again. Very broadly. That's actually made us stronger in the sense that it's been so encompassing that everyone that's got any kind of relationship, if you've got a Jewish dad, you're Jewish, according to the lights of Hitler and Pharaoh. Think about most, a lot of people actually, that went into the camps you, didn't it, know they were Jewish. Sorry to interrupt you. When it comes to Hitler, he said if one of your grandparents was Jewish, Absolutely. You were Jewish. And that actually makes us stronger because, because of that, more people identify themselves with Judaism. There are people that went into the camps that, like I said, didn't know they were Jewish. And that, I think, is quite an incredible reaction to what happened back then, that it makes us stronger. And that I don't think defining ourselves by one thing, by the Jewish mother... The Jewish mother, is the, as we know, is the halachic yes, reason course. for why we're Jewish. Yeah. 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 I mean, the, uh, the discussion could be as simple as a Jewish mother, end of the schmooze for tonight. But we know there are so many different foibles to our Judaism. Well, if you, if you discover, just for the sake of argument, if you discovered through some quirk that, oh, it turns out either your mother wasn't who you thought it was or that your mother wasn't Jewish for whatever reason. Would you feel less Jewish? Would you behave differently? Would you suddenly go off and have a different life? I think it's often the perception of those around you that might affect you more. If other people found out that your mother wasn't Jewish, how, how you would be treated? I think I wouldn't value the opinion of the people who would change their behaviour based on that fact. Perhaps you wouldn't value it, but it would certainly have an effect on how you felt towards the religion. Because if you think, if you find out you're not halakhically Jewish and then so many people are saying, oh, well, you're not Jewish, you can't do this, you can't do that, you're going to lose your affection towards well, Judaism. I don't think it would change my, my attitude to Judaism at all. I think I, I would have exactly the same relationship with the religion because I don't really put that much stall or value in technical 
legalese definitions handed down by a religious authority. But if, but so if you found you out you weren't, be... why would you bother with the cultural and traditional side of it if you found out you weren't Jewish? Well, I've been raised to value those things. I've been raised to enjoy being part of that community and enjoy being part of those family occasions and be proud of that heritage. But you are yeah. utterly culturally Jewish. You're not religiously Jewish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And which is fair enough. And although I consider myself, well, perhaps not totally religious, but, but definitely traditional observant, observant yeah. I think as an Orthodox Jew, as a traditional Jew, I think actually the liberal Jews are quite right that if a child is born of a Jewish father and a non-Jewish mother, as long as the, as the mother approves, the child is a allowed to be a Jew. And I think that should be it. And I think there should be no criticism of Jews like you, and Jews have one Jewish parent who, who is a mother, and therefore they aren't Jewish. I think if they want to be Jewish, they should be allowed to be Jewish. Yeah, some, I agree. Someone in my family who we thought had married, as we say, out, it now seems it's very likely that the husband's mother's mother who he hadn't realised, was Jewish. So therefore, so, they were Jewish. Yes. Yes. That's very interesting. And it won't change him at all. He still won't eat schmaltz herring or, <laughs> <laughs> or go near smoked salmon. Well, you see, I met a man once who, who was the son of a Jewish father and a non-Jewish mother. He grew up and became deeply religiously Jewish. But halachically not, still. Halachically not, but no. he wears a kippah, he, he has learnt Hebrew, he goes to Yom Kippur, he behaves like an Orthodox Jew, but the Orthodox Jews will not convert him. And when I said to him, well, why don't you go and get converted by the Reform or the Liberals? Yeah. He said, no, because I believe myself to be an Orthodox Jew. Mm. Now, you see, this is what is so wrong as well, that he, he can't be accepted. I think the more we tie ourselves down to to these rules based on heredity, the the weaker we become. I, I think it's really got to be a question of self-defining and a child being able to decide for themselves with influence from their family and their upbringing and the values that they have. And we need to get away from it's just, oh, it's handed yeah, to you whether yeah. you like it or and not. I, th- I think this brings us back to what I was saying about how people outside the religion seem to define mm. us better than we define ourselves, in the sense that you're a Jew if you're a Jew. There's nothing more to it. Well, someone in my family, somebody else in my family, she is Jewish with Jewish mother, Jewish father, but she considers herself not Jewish, and so her children are not Jewish, and her husband happens not to be, but she gets very angry if I say to her, but you are Jewish, the kids are Jewish. No, she's not. She has deemed she's not, so she's not. Absolutely, and she should be allowed to feel like that, which I think is, I personally think that's very sad. I'd much rather have someone like Joe than someone like her, but she's every right (laughs) to do so. But there is the argument, not the argument, the law that you cannot convert out. Once you've converted, or once you're born as a Jew, you have a Jewish soul. You, You can't change that. Well, that's interesting because Disraeli, Disraeli, who was converted as a child, he always believed himself to be a Jew. He called himself a a Christian Jew. That's right. Mm. But I think there were probably more political reasons as to why he converted. No, well, he was only a schoolboy. His father converted. The real reason why his father converted was the synagogue lifted up his, his how much he had to pay, and he refused to pay, and he was so cross 
that he was asked to pay more money to be a member of the congregation, that he gave it all up and converted his Gosh. son. Gosh. Can I say we've actually had a, a message here on the Facebook feed and I should point out to those listening to the podcast or to Spectrum Radio that the live stream is only for the recording. So if you're listening on the podcast or on the radio, please don't send us any messages as obviously it won't be live then. There's a message here from Andy who said, I formally converted, even though my father is Jewish and my mother is not. I can definitely relate to this conversation. Mm. Now, this is very interesting because it's something that happens quite a lot from what I can tell, where we have the father is Jewish. The father often still has, still kind of yearns a bit and possibly may well still practice some kind of Judaism. But, Mm. I mean, it's happened in my family where, the, the father's Jewish, the mother's not. And the children really have quite a warmth towards Judaism. Obviously, in Andy's case, such a warmth that he, he's actually converted. Which I think is quite fascinating, really. What I find very sad, though, is when people convert by reform, for example. And I know of situations where I know a couple of friends from my old Haider went to, to Israel. And they were brought in by this family and so warm. When they told them... That their mother had converted via reform, they were pretty much kicked out of the home. They oh. didn't want to know them. Oh, that's awful. Now, that kind of thing really upsets me. That's awful. Oh, when you're not going to get peace and harmony within this one religion, how are you going to expect world peace everywhere and yeah. Arabs and us? And yeah. ev- it's impossible. Yeah, quite. And, and that is the case, which is why this infighting that we have of who is a Jew really... I think that's one of the biggest problems we face. We always talk about the people, anti-Semitism. We talk about anti-Zionism, all kinds of things. Really, our biggest problem, I think, is this, is the fact that we cannot even Define tell each ourselves. other. Are you Jew? Am I Jew? Well, no, no. well I don't think you are. I think well, we're Jewish. It, well, Jewish, quite. <laughs> that's really the biggest worry. And I think, as I said about throwing everyone as, you're all Jewish because you've got Jewish ancestry, kind of works. In a sense that, why should we be so exclusive? Why should we exclude people who actually, you know what? For example, we all know convertees, I'm sure. My father's a convertee. My, my sister-in-law's converted as well. Convertees are often, I don't want to say better Jews, but are often it's what I more said. keen and yes. more, more knowledgeable. Gone, yes. When you think what they've gone through, all we had to do was be born. I know, I know a yeah. woman who came, who was uncle was a bishop and she met a a very good friend of mine a a jew they fell in love he said you have to convert she said certainly and she kept a cashier house her husband sadly died quite young a few years ago she still goes to synagogue every shabbat still keeps a strictly kosher house and in fact her parents-in-law found it rather difficult because she was so religious (laughs) (laughs) and yet you find People who were born into it, they just take it for granted. Yes. And they don't have any connection. Now, I don't mind if someone doesn't go to shore. I don't mind if they don't doven three times a day. Joe, for example, you're a cultural Jew. That's easily as good as any other Jew. Exactly. And that's the problem where people think this Jew's better than that Jew. I think you can also come down to valuing the observation of laws and rituals over the spirit behind them so living yeah. morally being for example yeah. in the example you get story you gave being welcoming to people no matter what their yeah. genetic past their genetic story and that's a more jewish response 
I get very, very annoyed on behalf of many friends whose children have now become ultra-religious and they are so totally kosher that they refuse to eat in their parents' house, the house where they were brought up in for the first 20, 25 years of their life. And to me, honouring thy mother and father is far more important than so saying, what, what, I can't what eat really in your doing house. criticising deeply religious Jews who, who are a bit intolerant of other Jews. And that's a sadness. Yeah, I think it is. And that's the biggest problem I think we face well, in Judaism there we today. Are. I think that's a good way in which to end it. So uh, my thanks to our guests, founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberts, and children's author, Joe Craig. And please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash Jewish Views, or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. And now it's time for our Rabbinic Thought for the Week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi, UK. As a teenager, I spent a year in Yeshiva, in Yeshiva Takotel, and for me it never ceased to amaze me as I walked out of my building and looked across at the site of the western wall of Kotel. Part of our history the remaining wall of the second temple. And to think that for 2,000 years, Jerusalem was not ours. And in 1967, as Rav Goen said, the famous words, Hakotel biyadenu, the kotel is in our hands. And you think back to Rabbi Akiva, who when he viewed the destruction of the second temple and saw a fox walking through the ruins of a plowed Beta Mikdash, the ploughed temple ruins. He laughed. Yet his rabbinic colleagues were crying and they asked him, why are you laughing, Akiva? And he said simply that there is a prophecy of Uriah that says there will be a destroyed temple and the temple will be ploughed over. But now I've seen that prophecy fulfilled. I know that one day the second prophecy will come true. That of Zechariah, that old men and women will sit in Jerusalem and young children will play in the streets of Jerusalem. And it took 2,000 years for that hope to become a reality. But today, when I go with my family or my brother takes his family to Shalim, our children play in the streets of Jerusalem. That dream has been fulfilled. In 1948, we got back our body when we returned to Israel. But in 1967, we got back our soul, Yerushalayim, the center of the universe, the place that we can call home the centre of the Jewish world. Thank you to Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi, UK, for our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to all of our guests, Russell Lenger, Darren Altman, Joshku and Alison Gunnison, Gabby Lebetkin. Thanks also to our Schmooze team, Judy Carberts and Joe Craig. And of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget to thank our team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk. And you can also search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.